Simple Beep, Episode 44, Portability. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And this episode, we're going to do a little bit of an abstract topic. In, in the past, sometimes we've talked about very concrete topics like, hey, let's talk about keyboards this week or a particular piece of software. But this time we're going to talk about a trend in Apple's design over many years, really going back even before the beginning of the Mac. And that is just the portability of their products. I think that there's a lot of talk about this in modern Apple press, always wondering you know, what the next products are going to look like, how, how much thinner how, what little bit of aluminum or aluminum uh, Apple is going to shave off of their next product. But the fact is that it was a long, long path to get to these very super slim products that we have from Apple today. And when you think about the majority of Apple's lineup and specifically weighted for what sells the most to consumers, almost everything these days can be considered mobile in some way. Yeah, even, I mean, even the iMac that I'm recording on now is essentially a mobile machine. It's just that it's not convenient to carry around yeah. because it, it has basically the same type class of parts that were traditionally considered as being notebook parts. But it's got a you know nice big 23-inch retina screen, so I can't just like haul it around super easily, although certainly more easily than, uh, than iMacs and other computers in the past. And we'll get to that later in the episode. <laughs> But I think we're going to start by going more or less chronologically and going back, like I said, before the Mac started. And one of the first mobile, not really mobile, but portable products that Apple created was in the Apple II era. Now, obviously, if you think of the original Apple II and some of its successors like the 2E or the 2GS, they were definitely desktop computers. And you know, some of them even had that desktop form factor where the keyboard was built into the CPU unit. So there was absolutely no question that the entire thing went together, but was certainly of the size and weight that you weren't going to be moving it around, except as you know, a very conscious move, like I'm I'm moving from one house or one office to another, and I'm going to you know take it take it down completely, move it, and then and then put it back together. But one of the later models of the Apple II was designed to be much, much, much slimmer and almost verging on portable. And this was the Apple IIc. And when you look at the specs of it, in thinking about desktop computers of the day or even of 10, 15 years later, where you would have a tower or a pizza box enclosure that would weigh itself maybe 15, 20 pounds, the Apple IIc weighed in at just seven and a half pounds, or about 3.4 kilograms. And that was in its basic configuration. And you've probably seen this. It has, like, it has, I think, the cutest monitor ever designed by Apple because it, it, the whole thing almost looks kind of ET to me with sort of the, the little, little head on top, or, or maybe Wally. -E. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's this very small, compact, cubic monitor, not like the, you know, big 17 and 20 inch CRT behemoths that would come later on. And so the 7.5 pounds, of course, applies to just the, the main unit itself with the CPU, keyboard, and floppy drive, and then the monitor sticking up above. One of the interesting things, though, was that Apple was already thinking about ultra portability in some sense. And there was a non-standard configuration, an add-on option that was called the Apple Flat Panel Display. And yes, the, this product name, Apple Flat Panel Display, came out in 1984. So right around the same time as the Mac itself. But it was designed for the Apple II line, and it was this very oddly shaped display, to be honest. And this meant that it didn't get particularly great reviews because it had some quirks. So the aspect ratio of the display, it's much wider than it is tall. So you would be able to, you kind of imagine it as just only fitting maybe like a paragraph of text. 
And I think we've talked in previous episodes about the AlphaSmart line of devices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This almost looks like the AlphaSmart display where it's deliberately just a few lines of text. And I think that the way that it operated with the 2C was that if you were in a text entry mode, it worked very well because it would just, you know, you would just see text ordinarily and it would scroll off quicker. But apparently when doing any kind of graphics, well, there wasn't any, there wasn't any special hardware translation of the graphics from the software that was expecting a standard size display, like a standard VGA display. And so it would, it would just smush down into this smaller aspect ratio and everything would be very, very squat and, and the graphics would appear basically incorrect on this display. So it was of limited utility. Other things that made it limited was the fact that it wasn't integrated into the case itself and not even like something like we have today with like an iPad where you can attach a cover or a keyboard cover and it it kind of integrates directly into the device itself. There wasn't even any way to clip on the Apple flat panel display. It just kind of had to prop up in the best way that you could get it and there was no way to adjust the angle. And that was bad because it was a traditional liquid crystal display and had very poor contrast, no backlighting, was basically impossible to see unless you had a light shining directly on it. And this was a theme, of course, in in many portable screen products up until a point. So it wasn't really a great portable solution. It was portable in that sense that it was easier to pick up and move, but that was not something that you would want to do every day with it, or even necessarily every week with it. And uh, it was also not portable in more of a technological sense, because it was still a desktop computer in the fact that it needed to be plugged into the wall at all times. And that was the type of power supply that it had. So you weren't going to be able to take it, you know, and and put it in even like a car or something and, and have it be portable in that sense. And so there were apparently a few third-party battery power packs that I guess you could like you could just plug into the power port that you know where you would ordinarily plug the the cord that goes into the wall you could plug in some presumably monster battery pack probably weighing almost as much as the the 2C itself and then you could run it off of that for I imagine a very short amount of time <laughs> Like a portable UPS just for the computer. Yeah, and uh, we'll see that you know, 1984 battery technology was a huge limiting factor. Battery technology and screen technology were the things that were keeping computers from going mobile, more than portable, but into, into that mobile or you know, laptop space. Even so, though, Apple, they just they wanted to push the boundaries with portability and so we said that the Apple IIc came out in 1984, the same year as the Mac. And of course, the Apple II line continued to sell new models for a very, very long time, even after the Mac was out. So in the meantime, the Mac comes out and it has its own desktop form factor that we'll, we'll discuss a little bit later. Again, not a strict portable, but maybe a little bit easier to pick up than, and move than a DOS box or an original Apple II or something like that. But Apple really wanted to push in this space, and so in 1989, they released the Macintosh Portable, and there it is right in the name. It's advertising the fact that it is portable, and you can pick it up and move it around. And uh, we saw one of these uh, just, I think, two episodes ago in <laughs> Douglas Adams' right. uh, documentary, Hyperland, in the, in the opening scene, there's a Mac Portable, and it's a very distinctive machine because it's starting to look like what we consider a notebook computer to be today, except the hinge is totally in the wrong place because the screen opens up about halfway along the body of the machine just to reveal the keyboard. And then there's a fixed piece in the back that holds the main guts and circuitry of the machine. So, in terms of what they could cram into the Mac Portable, it was pretty good. It weighed 15.8 pounds, or 7.2 kilograms, 
and was indeed portable in that sense that, well, you could you could lug that around. I mean, you know, it's like a loaded briefcase or something. And it was not cheap. That uh, that miniaturization came at a price. So the Macintosh Portable sold for $6,500 in the base configuration when it was introduced. But the thing that made people excited about it was the fact that you know, there were, especially on the DOS side, there were other entries into portable computing. The Macintosh Portable was not the very first, but the re- initial reviews were very positive because they said, it's a real Mac. It does everything that a desktop Mac can. And in fact, uh, was able to find the original Macworld review of it. And true to good old Macworld form, they ran it through the labs and had those, you know, the graphs with uh, performance graphs with bars, <laughs> and they showed that the Macintosh Portable was between the power of uh, Macintosh SE and uh, SE30, which was not bad. I mean, the SE30 was a pretty high end machine, so it was it was a solid middle of the road Mac that could be used on the road, and the reason for that was because it did have a battery and it had a very interesting battery and ways of managing the power consumption of that battery. Yes, the battery first was a lead acid battery. You know, these days we're used to lithium ion or maybe even before then some nickel cadmium, but this was a lead acid battery, very heavy, probably contributing to a significant amount of that uh, 15 plus pound weight. You probably still use a lead-acid battery every day, but it's to start your car. And think about what that battery is like if you've ever had to change it. It's just like a a huge thing. It's huge and it's dense. Like you pull it out and you're like, this this is a brick. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so it had a huge solid chunk of power generation in that back-end component of it. And the battery was wired into the computer in series with the power supply, the cable, the power supply management, and the cable running out to uh, the plug in your wall. So if you let your unit run through its battery, um, which we'll talk about in a little minute, how that battery life worked out, uh, even if you plugged it in, uh, the machine still wouldn't turn on. The battery would have to get a charge first. But nonetheless, it was... Uh, really advanced technology for the time and caught positive reviews again from Macworld, a quote from them that I really loved. This was like their pull quote at the beginning of their multi-page feature on the Macintosh Portable. It has, quote, so much innovation and new technology went into the Macintosh Portable that it can't be dismissed out of hand. So some people thought, you know, eh, maybe this is a ridiculous looking machine. But they were they were pretty uh, pretty positive about it. And one of the interesting things about this battery in particular is that Apple claimed that on this lead-acid battery, and given some of the other technological advances that went into the Macintosh Portable, they said that you could get 6 to 10 hours of battery life. And they also said that if you were able to go without accessing the hard drive at all, so like maybe you used a RAM disk or something like that, that you could have up to 15 hours of battery. Which is something all of Apple's laptops are still striving towards today. Right. And so the fact that Apple themselves claimed, oh, you can get 10 hours of battery. I mean, <laughs> we're still talking about this 27 years later. And even if these this was uh, Apple before maybe like the late 2000s, when they kind of changed how they reported uh, estimated battery life, and, and I think now they call it like wireless web or something, and it's more true numbers. Uh, even if those are six to 10 marketing hours of battery life, that was still going to be head and shoulders above certainly the competition at the time and even Apple's own laptops for the next couple generations. And it was because they just put so much weight into it. It's like, okay, we're, we're going to just, there's no way around this. You want this machine to run for a while. So we're going to have to put that, uh, that power in there. But yeah, 10 hours of battery, it's that all-day battery life claim that you still get with the the iPad or something. And then people say, why don't you make it two millimeters thicker and then we'll have more hours of battery? Nope, 10 hours of battery. It's what we always aimed for. One final tidbit about the battery and the the power system on the Macintosh Portable. Uh, There's this quote from Low End Mac 
that the machine draws the same amount of power, whether it is shut down and plugged in or asleep and plugged in. There's no power switch on the machine. Yeah, it was a Mac that essentially never turned off, even even if you went to shut down, which also tells you a little bit about how that power circuitry must have worked. And like you said, you know, uh, it was arranged in in series with with the main power supply and the battery. And yeah, it's it's a weird device. It's it it's it seems like a hack, right? <laughs> yeah. And it kind of was. And because this was new ground, nobody even really had an expectation for what a portable computer should look like. All that was really necessary was to have it be one, self-contained, and two, small enough that you would consider moving it around on a regular basis. And so, like I said, the the form factor is odd for the Mac Portable. It has an ordinary, uh, ordinary resolution and ordinary aspect ratio screen for the time, so that, that made it more normal. Uh, but it hinged in that middle point. And then the keyboard was also interesting. The, apparently, you could order several different configurations of keyboard when you got the machine. And this was like quasi-user serviceable, but apparently Apple said, really, you should take it to a dealer to change it around. But you could either get a keyboard and a trackball built in to the case, and you could put that either on the left side or the right side, so I guess if you were lefty or righty, or you could forsake the trackball entirely and have a numeric keypad installed into the case, presumably on the right, because that's where they traditionally go. And I guess in that configuration, you would need to have an ADB, ADB mouse to plug in so that you would have any kind of cursor movement, because otherwise there was nothing built into the case. There was no trackball, no trackpad, doesn't exist yet. Uh, so it's interesting that they gave that option, especially because that could mean that if you didn't bring a peripheral along with you, you could be totally stuck. Going back to the display, it was uh, the very first Macintosh Portable had a display that had some pros and cons. It was an active matrix display, which was high-end for the time, uh, like a very sharp screen. And uh, I think, according to Wikipedia, uh, the only other machine Apple was putting out that used it was the top-of-the-line PowerBook at the time. So, I mean, like, it was good. It may have been black and white, but it was uh, a standard aspect ratio, an active matrix panel, but the very first Macintosh portable uh, did not have a backlit display. So just like the uh, the little LCD that came with the, or excuse me, the flat panel display that came with the 2C, you could really, you needed to uh, have an external light source. Eventually, Apple revved the Macintosh portable as it does with most of its products. And the second generation did have a backlit display. However, there's a note also on the Wikipedia page that it reduced the battery life by about half. Yeah, I, I believe that. So much for your all-day battery. But that makes sense. I mean, that's still, to this day, common wisdom that if you're trying to save battery on your notebook, turn down the brightness. Yep. Uh, so that was the Macintosh Portable. One other quote from Macworld, just to give you an idea of what the real-world comparisons were for this. In their summary at the end of their article, they said, Folded up, the Macintosh portable looks a lot like a portable typewriter. And in many respects, it was trying to fill that role. Where, you know, who used portable typewriters in the late 80s? Business people, journalists, people who are going to, you know, journalists going to cover events live. And so if you were used to word processing in your office, because maybe you've been using Apple's or DOS machines or early Macs, for the preceding few years, gee, wouldn't you like to have that on the road, even if it occupies an entire heavy backpack? Well, yeah, sure, in some respects. One of the other interesting things about, uh, before we go on to another actual Apple model that was sold to consumers, and one of the things that made me start thinking about this topic in general is, again, that Apple was really driving towards 
portability from the very beginning. And uh, there's an interesting exhibit now on at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. And it's on until October, if you happen to be passing through San Francisco. And I was last week and uh, went and saw the exhibit. They've got some cool stuff. Uh, they have some of Susan Kerr's original notebooks and drawings. And they also have this totally bizarre Mac prototype, which is a flat panel Mac prototype from 1984. So before the Macintosh portable by almost, well, more than five years. And it is extremely small uh, for the time. And I think that it's a non-functioning prototype, like it's a case prototype, but really shows off some interesting design. It carries forward from the Apple IIc, and it also looks a lot like the, the Macintosh portable with that sort of uh, ridges through the plastic casing. And this is, I imagine, what they wished the Macintosh portable could be. But given the size of this thing, I mean, I, I think it's about, it, it was in a display case, it's a little hard to see. Uh, I took some photos and we'll put them in the show notes. You know, it looks like it's about two inches thick, including the display and the keyboard and everything. Uh, it's got a little handle over on the right-hand side so that you could literally just pick it up and walk away with it. It does fold down completely, um, although with the screen facing out, which is an interesting thing, something they hadn't really considered, I guess. Um, but it was really small, and it, the power, the, the ability to power the machine in that space was clearly just not there in 1984, or you know, they would have shipped the product, probably. <laughs> um especially because something like the Macintosh Portable sold for a premium price. Uh, and Apple was not afraid of selling high-end products at premium prices then. I mean, think of you know the 2FX selling for $10,000 in the 80s. Um, but this is a very, very cool device that shows just how committed to this concept of portability Apple was from the very beginning. And there's some really cool design touches. Um, this keyboard, I would love to have this keyboard. Uh, if someone wants to make a Kickstarter for creating like a 3D printed version of this Mac prototype keyboard and hooking it up to USB, I would buy it. Absolutely. Um, all of the, I don't know how practical it would be, but it would look great. So it's got these like on every key, there's a r rather large round dimple inset into the key. Uh, and that's above where the printed label for the key is. But the really like future <laughs> part of this design is that all of the keycaps are not square or rectangle. They're all parallelograms, so they're all slanted. Like the, the, the keys themselves are italic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so they're all slanted to the right. And uh, I got a detailed picture of the uh, the control option command keys on on this keyboard, and they just look. They just look sublime. Yeah, I, I ditto what Ed said. I will happily pledge to a Kickstarter or some kind of crowdfunded uh, modern version of this keyboard. So let's move on to an Apple device that actually came to <laughs> came to exist in the real world and be sold to consumers. And it's the one that bore the name of portability for Apple for many, many years. Yeah, the very first PowerBook, the PowerBook 100. The uh, first three PowerBooks, which were all in the 100 series, I think it was like 100, 140, and 170, were released in October 1991. And uh, we'll just talk about the base model here, the 100. Uh, it took a lot of the of similar specs as the portable, uh, speaking of CPU, RAM, uh, hard disk, but put it in a form factor that is much more familiar to the laptops we know today. For example, the keyboard was pushed all the way to the back of the bottom piece, leaving room for wrist rests. And so you could actually comfortably type on the machine itself. And it had a trackball in the middle where our trackpads are today. Uh, it was it kind of set the standard for what laptop computers would look and function like. The canonical pointing location, if you ask Steve Jobs, because... As we know, late in Steve Jobs' life, uh, there were some photos of his office that revealed him to be a notorious front mouser. 
he liked to keep the mouse in front of his keyboard. And so that was the location for the the trackpad on, not trackpad, trackball on the original PowerBook as well. But perhaps even more distinctive about the the actual physical product was its size. It came on the heels, you know, two years after the Macintosh Portable, and it was a third of the weight and a third of the price, basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was only 5.1 pounds. And it accomplished this certainly through the progress of technology and miniaturization. Uh, but it also lacked a couple things that were still present in the uh, the Macintosh Portable. One of those things were uh, <laughs> lead-acid batteries. Um, the PowerBook 100 did not have uh, big buckets of lead-acid on the inside, and that resulted in significantly less battery life, uh, really only about two to three hours in marketing battery life on a fully charged nickel-cadmium battery. Uh, and another thing about the PowerBook 100 is that it was kind of classified, maybe retroactively so, as a sub-notebook, it didn't have a built-in floppy drive. Oh, yeah, that's right. So, yeah, you may have to have a, a peripheral on the side to get your full functionality, but that was what you sacrificed for that true portability. You know, 5.1 pounds, that 2.3 kilograms, that can really go in any backpack, and not like a custom backpack just for it. <laughs> um and of course, it didn't have a handle. It was self-contained in, it, in its own right and was just supposed to slot in uh, wherever you were going to carry it. And uh, there's a great, th- this is the uh, opening quote of the Macworld review of the PowerBook 100, or actually the entire PowerBook launch series. And uh, it says, no longer must your shoulder ache from lugging around a Mac portable, a headless 2CI, or a compact Mac. Nor must you work furtively on a DOS notebook when on the road. Portable computing is now a reality for the Mac. And that was what the PowerBook represented and was the flagship of Mac portable computing for many, many years. But to accomplish that, there were were sacrifices, like you said, Brian, with the, the floppy drive that would be on the side, at least on the low end model. And then the types of things that Apple still does today, taking a size and weight goal and then engineering to meet it, as opposed to saying, these are the parts that we have. How close can we cram them together and still make it work? Which is what I feel like the Macintosh Portable was more like. And so in the PowerBook 100 series, they were doing this stuff that they're still doing today, like custom shaping the boards inside of the case. So the main logic board in any computer that you opened up in 1991, it was going to be a rectangle. Of course, it was going to be a rectangle. You punched it out of, you know, you punched it out of silicon. So why would it be any other shape? But the logic board in the PowerBook 100 was L-shaped because they made an L-shaped cutout to put the floppy bay or the battery bay and still eke out a little extra space for functional parts. And then on top of that, literally on top of that, there was a second daughter board that was apparently called the piggyback board (laughs) (laughs) because it rested on top. So they said, okay, well, we, we, we took that space, that horizontal space, and dedicated it to a different part. Uh, but we still need more circuitry. Why don't we stack it on top? And that's exactly what they did. And so no one was complaining that their power book was too thick in 1991. So this was a perfectly sensible engineering decision. And it really made, you know, it made the product significantly more attractive. One other thing that I just want to note before we move on from the power book 100 here, you know, I, I think that to be honest, Apple was doing really well with not just the portability, but also the price point of hitting you know, $2,500 in 1991. Yes, that's steep, but you are going to be one of the few people with a true fully functional laptop computer at that time. One thing that got me, though, was that Macworld had a full list of all of the upgrade options that you could get from Apple and also some third-party stuff. And uh, we'll link to these. Uh, there are full... Uh, full PDFs of Macworld magazines available 
out there. I think this is on vintageapple.org, uh, which was a really great resource. But anyways, they had this list of all of the upgrades. And so you could buy a RAM upgrade from Apple, of course. Uh, and as we all know, if you buy the RAM from Apple, it's going to cost you something that has held true for for a long, long time. And so you could get a 2-megabyte RAM upgrade for $399 or a 4-megabyte RAM upgrade for $899. So that's, yeah, that's more than a third of the cost of the entire machine Yeah, just to boost your RAM up to a whopping 4 megabytes. That pretty much is a wrap on our coverage of the PowerBook 100, although it is worth mentioning that uh, other publications like to look back on early Apple work uh, just like we do. And so the PowerBook 100, for the many ways in which it defined notebook computers to the modern era, uh, still gets recognized. And uh, so there are a bunch of awards that it continues to rack up. Uh, whether they're, you consider them as official or not is up to you, the listener. But uh, we'll throw out one, for example, uh, Mobile PC Magazine in 2005 named the PowerBook 100 as the greatest gadget of all time. Of course, it's 2005 before the iPhone comes out, but uh, it's still, as Wikipedia points out, ahead of the Sony Walkman and the original Atari. Pretty good. Uh, so now let's move on to the next kind of landmark achievement in Apple portability. It's the next uh, big series of PowerBook models, the PowerBook Duo. And this is where Apple fully committed to the sub notebook uh, product description, not quite yet ultra portable or whatever netbooks or whatever uh, the MacBook Air <laughs> eventually came to uh, define the category, the sub notebook line. So again, no uh, removable media, um, but continuing to get even smaller and lighter. The first PowerBook Duo dropped its weight down to 4.2 pounds under two kilograms. Its battery was not much better than the PowerBook 100, though. On average, you get anywhere from two to four marketing hours of battery life. The thing that set the PowerBook Duo aside was how it could independently function as you know a Mac that you can use to get work done on the road. But when you got back to your desk, there was a special accessory possibly waiting for you. Yeah, and this was the Duo Dock. And this was one of the reasons that it was even, I think, marketable as a sub-notebook, because sub-notebook also would indicate like subpar performance at that time, because you were literally removing pieces from the machine to make it thinner and lighter and more portable. But what if you had those pieces waiting for you when you got back to your office or to your home? And this was exactly what the Duo Dock did. And it took advantage of the you know, the size expectations of the time, both for laptop and desktop PCs. And I mean that in the general class of you know, Macs and Windows PCs. And what the Duo Dock was is honestly a fairly remarkable device. I think one of the more remarkable devices that Apple has ever put together. And the way that the Duo Dock functioned, the full Duo Dock had a giant slot in it that you would take the entire PowerBook Duo and stick it in like it was a giant floppy drive, basically. You know, an inch and a half thick, two inch thick, and the width of the entire computer. And you would slot the entire computer in, and then the Duo dock would be attached to all of your desktop peripherals, like your monitor, mouse, uh, printer, modem, etc., and all of that would connect all in one step of loading the Duo into the Duo dock. One caveat that I did not realize but makes total sense at the time was the fact that you know, in, in the early 90s, in the Apple desktop bus era, you're always cautioned, never, never, ever hot swap oh, yeah. any of those connections. Like if your keyboard comes unplugged, shut everything down before trying to like replug it in or you run the risk of destroying everything. At least this is, you know, these were the the scary ghost stories that we were told. And because of that, the duo was extremely conservative about this and you actually had to shut the machine down entirely before either loading it in or removing it from the dock. And then it would start back up uh when you resumed using it. 
And uh, so obviously you could bring it home, say, in w- with the case closed, and that meant that it was asleep. And you could put it into the Duo Dock, and if it detected that the computer was on and asleep, it would automatically eject it. Like, no, I, I will not have that. You would have to open it back up, shut it down, and then put it into the dock. Likewise, if you were, you know, getting ready to you know, go on the road, you couldn't just pop the duo out and run. <laughs> um, when you hit the eject button, it would actually prompt you to save and shut down, just as if you had selected shut down, like you know, go through and quit all of your applications, shut down, and then it would physically eject. One of the other interesting things about the Duo Dock was it was it was extremely modular. So uh, there were different ways to configure the features that you wanted, either by putting those features into the Duo itself or into the dock, because they both or connecting them to the dock. Um, and there was also a separate accessory called the Mini Dock that didn't have the big giant cassette VHS tape kind of mechanic to it. It was just a dock that used the same duo dock connector, but was open air, essentially. And so it was much smaller and only went on the back end of the machine in the same place that you would uh, plug in other ports. And the mini dock gave you a bunch of additional ports on the back of the duo. So it gave you a video out, ADB, couple serial ports, SCSI, sound in, sound out, uh, and of course a charging port. And the funniest thing about the mini dock is that, okay, when, when was the PowerBook Duo? Introduced in 1992. Yes, okay. The PowerBook mini dock uh, is basically still standard issue in my office today <laughs> because my coworkers have these HP laptops that have these docking stations that for the world look the size and shape of the mini dock and do the exact same thing. They offer video, they offer USB instead of ADB or serial. They offer sound in and out. They offer an ethernet port and a modem port. Cause of course you need that because it's 2016. <laughs> and it's like, it's so baffling to me that Yes, the Duo and the Dock concept was revolutionary when it was introduced by Apple. And other companies who said, oh, yes, that's a fantastic idea, let's take it, still think that it's a viable option for true portability in 2016. And that just blows my mind. I mean, I know that there are some products for current Mac notebooks today that are docking stations. Um, they're several different solutions for that because people have that same need of moving to and from the office to and to and from home. And so there's things like uh, the now non-existent Thunderbolt display from Apple. And the whole purpose there is that all you have to do is plug in one Thunderbolt port and power and everything you have is through the monitor. So that's like a docking station. Yeah, the promise of uh, Thunderbolt 3 and USB Type-C is that uh, the next monitor Apple puts out really will only have that one cable. And uh, our dream of, of a docking station, a first-party docking station, is you know perennially just around the corner. I, I believe in Apple's commitment to portability. If anything, doing the research for this show, I believe. So like we said, the PowerBook Duo was introduced in 1992 and lasted all the way up to 1997. And so at this point, Apple is making its first big chip transition from the first generation, like 68K Motorola chips to the PowerPC RISC processor. And uh, one of the final PowerBook Duo models did get that PowerPC, but uh, Apple kind of issued a one-off non-Duo sub-notebook with a PowerPC in it, the 2400 line of PowerBooks. Um, and this came out, of course, in 1997 on the tail end of PowerBook Duos. Uh, it was very similar, 4.4 pounds, uh, and uh, this was really the last sub-notebook Apple would make for a while. At that point, they were kind of moving towards their third big transition up to the G3, and uh, around that time, Steve Jobs came back and did his famous 2 by 2 matrix, which simplified the product lines, and we eventually got the PowerBook G3 and the iBook G3, neither of which really qualified as sub-notebooks. No, they were carrying on the expectations of mid-range notebooks that Apple had 
in the past. And and we're down around the same size and weight profile as what a sub-notebook of 60 years prior was considered to be. And so, you know, that's like a duo size um, where you're in that four to five pound range, maybe six pounds if you're going up to like a 15-inch uh, screen. But that was par for the course in terms of the absolute amount of baggage that you were going to have carrying around an Apple laptop or really even a Windows laptop unless you're going kind of, uh, you know, crazy desktop replacement 17-inch and a, and a numeric keypad type of case. <laughs> right. And so in the interest of time for this show, we'd like to skip forward to the next Apple model that, uh, while not technically a sub-notebook, was widely regarded as one and beloved for its true portability, and that's the 12-inch PowerBook G4. And I think if you ask around any Apple aficionado, they will point to this, even if they didn't have one. Like, I did not have one of these machines. I had a 15-inch PowerBook G4. But if you ask anyone, they will point to this and say, this is possibly the most beloved machine, period, that Apple has made just because of it felt so revolutionary because of what it was able to put in such a small package. It's kind of the final realization of that 1984 prototype. Like, ah, here we are. A <laughs> couple of, you know, a couple of decades later, we can actually put this all together in a single machine. So just to set the stage for this PowerBook G4, it was released in January 2003 alongside the equally astonishing 17-inch cafeteria tray. Cafeteria tray, yep. While the 12-inch PowerBook G4 was a well-received surprise, it didn't exactly come out of nowhere if you've been playing along. Like we said, uh, up until that point, we'd been working still in the 2x2 matrix where the laptop side for pros, there were the PowerBooks, and for the consumers, there were the iBooks. And we all fondly recall the original iBook G3 with its uh, toilet seat design and bright colors. But uh, it got a, the G3 iBook did get a complete refresh where it got the kind of like translucent white clamshell model that, for all intents and purposes, was the same kind of structure and mechanics as this 12 inch PowerBook G4, down to like where the ports were laid out, how the hinge worked, how the, uh, the little latch would uh, reach up magnetically and grab onto the side with the screen on to hold it closed. But the iBook G3 was, you know, it was a consumer machine. It relied on plastics. It had, it was just kind of like a little more bloated. The PowerBook G4 uh, shrunk down everything that the iBook kind of like got out of the way. And like, like I'd said, just kind of was like the final form. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the thing that's so distinguishing about the 12 inch PowerBook G4 is that the keyboard literally goes edge to edge. Yeah, there, there was no room wasted. Uh, it was 1.18 inches thick, 10.9 inches wide, and 8.6 inches deep. Again, for a 12-inch on the diagonal screen. 4.6 pounds. So not quite a duo, but uh, on the same side, you could get that very first model with a DVD-burning SuperDrive. Right, as opposed to the duo that was lacking basically any internal uh, or any removable storage at all. Yeah, and it uh, it had a battery, a battery which you could take out, um, which is something we uh, we're not used to anymore. And this battery got five hours of at that time still like five marketing hours, not necessarily five real world hours, unless you were turning airport off and putting your screen brightness way down. But yeah, it was easy to swap out the battery, so you could have, you know, in, in one respect, you could have a fifteen inch PowerBook G four and still get four to five marketing hours of battery on the bigger screen or for basically the same size and weight, just slightly reconfigured in your bag, you could have a 12 inch PowerBook G4 and a spare battery and get 10 hours of marketing battery all day battery life. And that was the thing that, that really pushed this over the line for so many people. Uh, you put a really great quote in here from Jason Snell, uh, who was, you know, again, just people people love to gush about this machine. And he said, one reason I loved the 12-inch PowerBook G4 was that it crossed some hard-to-define weight barrier, one I hadn't even been aware of until I started using a laptop that crossed it. 
The 12-inch PowerBook was so small and light that carrying my laptop around with me became an afterthought. This is the thing. You know, you, you move from portability, take, taking really the ability part of that word literally, like, well, you could if you wanted to, <laughs> to portable in the sense that you just you just take it with you. You don't think about it. It, it, it comes with you wherever you go. And, you know, for us, I think that that was, you know, that was when we were in college and we had our first power books and it was like, well, yeah, it, it weighs four or five pounds, but it goes in my backpack every time unless I have a particular reason not to take it with me. Yeah. And, and like Jason Snell said in that quote, it's not simply the weight. It's, it's a combination of the weight and the dimensions and, you know, like, like Ed, like you said, you could have a 15 inch PowerBook G4 or with a similar weight and like overall dimensions, you could have a 10 hour battery life on the 12 inch. Uh, it, it, it is, it was this kind of like, like Jason says, hard to define thing about the combination of its dimensions and size. Yeah. There, there are several axes that are kind of under consideration here. It's not just height, width, depth and weight, you know, the physical dimensions, but it's also what you got for it. So it's not just, it, it is in many senses how it feels in your hand, how it feels in your bag, but it's also the fact that you feel like you're getting your money's worth and you're getting your physical exertion worth for bringing it around with you. And the reason that the PowerBook G4 felt that way to so many people was it was in that tiny package and it was also hitting that mark that was remarked upon in the early uh, power books saying like, this is a true Mac. This is every bit as good as a desktop Mac that you can buy that you cannot take around with you. And so it felt like, it felt like a no compromises machine in many ways. And I think that's why people liked it so much. Yeah. That was the machine I took to college, the very first revision of the 12 inch PowerBook G4. And uh, despite the fact that the Rev B came out just as college started <laughs> in September of 2003, uh, I loved that machine, used it like very solidly for the first three years of college. So like I said, the 12-inch the PowerBook was universally loved and a kind of no compromises machine. So let's talk about a machine that was all compromises <laughs> in its first version, but still a huge milestone in Apple's portability and really notebook portability in general, outside of the, the realm of netbooks and, and miniaturized computers. And that, of course, is the MacBook Air. And I think everyone remembers the unveiling of the MacBook Air, which was completely unexpected. This was top-notch Apple secrecy. Nobody was expecting a revolutionary sub-notebook from Apple. And then Steve Jobs comes out on stage and pulls the thing out of a dang manila envelope. <laughs> and... Uh, and and people were really and truly astonished. Yes, it has tons and tons of compromises. We should, uh, now that we're into this era of the Mac portables, we should link up to the video that Stephen Hackett did recently oh, yes. where he reviewed like seven classic Mac notebooks in seven minutes. And he talks about, uh, he talks about the giant ones like the 17-inch cafeteria tray and the MacBook Air and the 12-inch G4. Uh, so we won't cover this in too much depth here. But needless to say, the MacBook Air didn't hit a subliminal line. Uh, it hit a totally tangible line because it was 3.0 pounds, 1.4 kilograms. And it went well below the what seemed like the plateau for Mac laptops, which was the one-inch thin. Uh, that was the marketing name for, you know, it was exactly 1.0 inches in the previous generations of, of PowerBook G4s. The MacBook went way below that. Um, at its thickest point, it was 0.76 inches thick. And then, of course, it has the taper down to just 0.16 inches at the front edge, which makes it feel so much thinner than it is. Like I said, though, tons of compromises. The original uh, Rev-A or Generation 1 had that wonky port door on the side, so the ports weren't always accessible. Um it had some weirdness with the the power connector because of that as well, and of course it was uh, a big step forward in terms of portability. 
Uh, I think we see that now with some time, but uh, a source of outrage at the time was the fact that it had a totally sealed-in battery, and you got about five hours on that battery, and that meant either you charged or you ran out. There was no hot-swapping in that second battery pack that was sitting in the bottom of your bag, so you got this extreme portability, but at a price. Let us all remember also that the default configuration of this MacBook Air was still with a spinning hard drive. It was, I think it was the same ones that they were putting in iPods at the time. Oh, yeah, that's right. Because that was the only hard drive that would fit in there, basically, was a 2.5-inch iPod hard drive, which meant that it was not high performance. There, there was the option to put an SSD, like not just like flash chips, but an SSD in that hard drive space. But I think it was uh, 60 gigs for $1,000. That and $899 will get you four megs of RAM. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, so I think what we're all waiting for was the Back to the Mac event where uh, Steve Jobs got up and talked about what he finally had, had arrived at the future of notebooks, the big second generation of the MacBook Air, which is the form factor that Apple is still selling today. Uh, conversations about the like the Mac rumors don't buy things aside. And this, uh, they, they refined it in a way that like, yes, this is what everyone is trying to be. Uh, this is the second generation of MacBook Air got in under the three pound mark, 2.96. It, man- it managed to make the thin edge of the laptop even thinner, 0.11 inches is what it tapers down to now. Maybe part of that is that they got rid of the uh, like the breathing sleep light and IR detector, which I had forgotten existed in the first generation. And yeah, that front edge is is super thin. I mean, like I pick up my work laptop to go to a meeting, and I have to be conscious about which side I grab it by. Because if you grab it by the front edge, it is so thin that like if I'm carrying like that and a notebook and something else in my hand, like it hurts. When I bought uh, my MacBook Air, which was uh, this vintage. The first thing I realized is that I think the like, if it's open, the bottom half of the computer's thickness is about the same as the little rubber feet. Like, so when you have it open and it's resting on the desk, it almost looks like it's floating because it's equally like above the surface that it's sitting on as much like as thick as it is when you're looking at it. It's incredible. And I think the interesting thing about this, like you said, Brian, you know, there's questions as to whether the MacBook Air line is going to go away. But when they settled on this revised case, that's what they've been working with for years since then. And the first revision here had a seven-hour battery life, and then things just kept improving because Apple was sticking with the case. You know, it was a unibody production, so you set up the milling machines to produce the same type of case, and you want to stick with it as long as possible, as long as it's tenable. But you can keep putting more efficient parts into that same physical space. That's exactly what they've done with the MacBook Air. I remember when I got my work machine brand new two and a half years ago, it had like 18 hours of battery life on a full charge. It was nuts. And it still gets, uh, when it's not plugged into an external display, it still gets like 12 hours, 11, 12 hours of charge. Uh, And it's been through like 300, 400 charge cycles. It is, you know, it is an incredibly efficient machine. Uh, yeah, I was going to say the same thing. I think when I got mine, which was in the, the 2013 uh, Haswell Intel Rev. Uh, yeah, I think the first time I, I installed Mavericks, which had some of the like behind the scenes power saving stuff, I would get routinely, I'd get 17 to 18 real hours of like web browsing, uh, text editing work. And it still hovers at like 10 to 12 today. So, of course, there's been one more giant compromising leap since the MacBook Air, and it's the MacBook, also famously known as the MacBook One, uh, because it has one port. Yes. And that came out a couple years ago and really brought the, you know, just brought the weight down incredibly. It's a 12-inch laptop, has a retina screen, it's 2.03 pounds. I'm sure that there's someone in Apple who's really pissed about those 0.04 pounds. Um, maybe someday they'll give it a, a revision like the MacBook Air and just shave off. There was 0.04 pounds, right, on the original mm-hmm. MacBook Air? Yeah. All right, I'm, I'm, I'm giving them a chance here. In, uh, in metric system, we're, we're now outside of the realm of kilograms. That's 920 grams. 
you know, go to an Apple store, pick one up. Um, I've, I've had the problem of like trying to check one out in the Apple store that I can't get a true sense for the heft of it because of the like cord that's locking it to the desk. This is like the final form <laughs> of Macintosh laptops. Obviously it has compromises, the single port, which means that you might have to carry around dongles, but you know, people complained about that bitterly, but they weren't thinking back to the PowerBook 100 that you might have to plug in an external floppy drive to. And, you know, so many points along the line, or the Duo, where you wouldn't have your full functionality until you took it home and plugged it into a giant box three times its size. And so people can complain as, as much as they want in 2015, 2016 about the MacBook One and the fact that you might have to carry around some adapters with you, but it is the same kind of philosophy that Apple's had in this design all along, where you want to miniaturize the device per se as much as possible without sacrificing too much functionality and then having some additional functionality available on the side. And, you know, again, in terms of battery life, all day battery life, marketing 10 hours, um, exactly what you would expect with the MacBook one. And yeah, I don't know. I don't know where portable Macs could go from there. Um, I mean, obviously you could make a 15 inch or a 17 inch, uh, with these, with the same kind of, of design as the MacBook one, you know, taking full advantage of that unibody process and scalloping your batteries and doing all the, the crazy things that it does that, have been part of this tradition for a long time, getting those parts, you know, putting those really crazy tiered scalloped batteries inside that case is really only just, you know, 20 some years of evolution on, Hey, we made the logic board, not a rectangle. And, and of course it's not that we're forgetting Apple's other laptops, the MacBook pro, uh, both with retina and without retina, which is still on sale as of this recording. But uh, we're, we're focusing on the things Apple is doing, again, to, to really pursue this final form of portability, which, as far as we can tell, I'll, I'll, ditto Ed, uh, this one-port MacBook has got to be it. I don't know where else you can shave uh, uh, physical size and weight from. Yeah, to be honest, though, you know, those traditional MacBook Pros, non-retina, that you can still buy today with a, with a DVD drive in it, Go and pick one of those up and you'll think, whoa, whoa, this is the past. Yeah. That's, that's like going back and picking up, uh, you know, a big chunky black power book, uh, when you were used to using one of those slim PowerBook G4s. I mean, obviously they were incredibly portable and we, we tolerated much, much worse when it was still on the cutting edge. But, but if you look at it now, you think, oof, why would I want to carry this heavy thing in my bag? <laughs> So uh, speaking of carrying things around that are really heavy and devices that didn't really have compromises, we're going to run through a few things here just in terms of Apple design. Apple has made a lot of products with handles. And obviously most of the PowerBooks didn't have handles because they were portable in and of themselves. But there was clearly this notion with many Apple products that you could move them around or when you had to move them around, uh, they would like to make that as easy as possible for you. And this goes back to the original Macintosh 128K and the other devices that were in that same form factor, like the SE and the Classic. They were the all-in-one form factor with the monitor on top, floppy disk down in the bottom, and of course the keyboard and mouse separately. But that all-in-one form factor did in fact have a little handle uh, recessed in the top back portion of it so that when you were putting it on a desk, you weren't sort of like... <laughs> compressing it from the sides and trying to put it down without dropping it, you had a nice way to move it into place. And those machines weren't particularly heavy. I mean, obviously they had small displays, eight and nine inch displays. Uh, and, you know, you suffered for that. But they were pretty slim. I mean, the original Macintosh was 16.5 pounds. And the Macintosh Portable was 15.8 pounds. Yeah. Like it only eliminated yeah. half a pound. And of course, that was because they had to put a lead-acid battery in it. I'm actually curious to know, like, if you can figure out from manuals, like, if you took the battery out of the Macintosh portable, what would it be down to? 12 pounds, 10 pounds, something more approaching what we were what we were thinking of in terms of a laptop. 
Um, and also in this form factor, the, uh, the classic and the color classic, we're moving up a little bit, putting in, you know, more hardware, bigger hard drives, bigger displays. And, uh, these are up to like 16 pounds, 22 and a half pounds. Uh, and then we move into, I guess the, the more behemoth devices that had handles. Yeah. Uh, the next one we want to cover, we've actually dedicated an entire episode to. It's the iMac G3. And uh, the initial iMac G3 models, which had uh, the tray loading CD and uh, optical media drives, among other things, were 38.1 pounds. And when they revised it to the slot loading, uh, they dropped a couple pounds to 34.7. And since uh, we are talking about the Apple Macintosh models, with handles, I think it's just fun to point out as a uh, as Stephen Hackett uh, helped us remember that the original iMac G3 actually had two handles: the main big one that was molded into the uh, the the colored part of the case, and then an itty bitty one on the bottom that, that was also obscuring, like I think one of the the RAM doors or something. Well, so you could get a really good grip on it to lift those forty pounds. <laughs> Um, unlike his UPS driver who had to lift them in the boxes, which was probably much, much more unwieldy because those boxes didn't have handles. I, I suppose that's something that we didn't put in, uh, in our outline for the show, but, uh, pretty much every Mac that you buy now comes in a box with a handle as well. I, th- I think even if you go in and buy like a 5k iMac, you can walk out of there with one hand free because it comes in a box that, uh, trapezoid shaped box with a very nice carrying handle on top. Um, so yeah, the iMac G3 is famous for being one of the heaviest Macs that Apple has created and also had some semblance of portability. Of course, the, the one that looked like it and really was truly portable was the original iBook, which, uh, came in those same, uh, sort of candy colors, uh, the tangerine and blueberry and was infamously called, you know, the toilet seat. But I think that Apple was really going more for like handbag. Mm-hmm. Uh, because unique to the iBook, the handle on the iBook was like recessed back by the hinge and actually flipped out. So, so it tucked away when you were using the machine or even if you were putting it into a bag, but then you could just sort of pull it out and there it was. And, and almost kind of dangerously feeling you could kind of swing the machine back and forth along that, uh, and just carry it on your, on your way. <laughs> and of course the other machines that had, uh, had handles, uh, were the G3, G4, and even the Mac pro towers. Uh, so there were the, the plastic, uh, towers that had ba- basically four handles, uh, cause it was a sy- fully symmetrical design, but you know, you were supposed to use the top handles to, to move those around. Same thing with the Mac pros, the, the cheese grater form factor. And uh, again, a friend of the show, Stephen Hackett, moves around heavy computers, and he has uh, informed us and all of the rest of his Twitter followers recently that just because those have handles, be careful not to drop one on your toe, because that will hurt very much. (laughs) And we would be remiss if we left out the the portable devices that certainly today are Apple's bread and butter, Uh, of course, like the iPhone, the iPad, and the Apple Watch. But that doesn't mean that we're going to forget some of the other very, very portable consumer devices that are also a part of Apple's history. Right. And so, of course, you know, we're, we've been going through as we've been talking about these models saying, like, well, is this a, a true portable? Is this a sub notebook? Just how portable is this? And of, of course, really, the true first truly portable devices that Apple made were the Newton devices. Um, you know, they look comically large to us now with our sleek iPhone sixes, uh, because they're, they're large even for, for a PDA. Uh, but they were truly portable devices, uh, designed as such, uh, you know, probably to go in a bag rather than a pocket, maybe a giant coat pocket. (laughs) Um, but they were definitely in the class of, of portable devices and built as such. And of course, the iPod, Apple's music player that uh, kind of turned the company around and really catapulted it into the mainstream. The original model with its uh, spinning wheel uh, was basically the size of a pack of cards. And uh, as we all are familiar with, the iPod 
uh, changed. It got smaller. It had spinoff models that were mini and nano. It moved from to smaller and smaller pockets of of your genes. <laughs> yeah, and then eventually clipped onto you and disappeared entirely into your phone. Yep. Uh, there's a, there's a fun article that's, uh, been linked to on some sites like Daring Fireball, but, uh, just in case you haven't read it, it's an article on The Ringer called An Ode to the iPod Classic. Uh, not just about the, the form factor and the portability of that, like, canonical iPod model, but also what life was like when you were limited to the actual MP3 files that you had to, uh, manually load and select, uh, instead of having, like, the entire world available to you to to stream and listen to. Um, so that's a fun read if you haven't checked that out already. Of course, we have the iPhone and iPad, various sizes of device that are all universally thin and for that reason, extremely portable, portable in your bag, portable around the house. And also, of course, well, we said we're nearing the end of what's possible left in terms of portability and of course, there's maybe another category on the horizon, which is led by devices like the Apple Watch. They're wearables. So, you know, maybe 20 years from now, we'll be able to do a show on wearability. It'll be interesting to see over the next few years uh, whether things like smartwatches were a fad that passed away because we actually wanted to have nice large screens to view things on or whether we're at the beginning of a category that is really going to have a long arc of development and innovation just the same way as you know maybe maybe the first Apple Watch where people say oh it's you know a small screen and it's kind of thick and what do these buttons do maybe that's a lot like like an Apple 2C or something and we haven't even envisioned uh what what real wearable computing looks like and can do for us yet. So interesting to to think about for the future of not this category, but maybe the next. So we've uh, brought up a lot of things and uh, described a lot of uh, comparative and relative sizes. So of course, you're going to want to go check out our show notes, which has links to uh, reviews and, of course, photos of a lot of the things we've mentioned on the show. Those show notes can be found at our website, simplebeep.com slash episodes. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, maybe about your favorite portable Mac uh, or portable Apple device in general, we have a contact form on our website, simplebeep.com, as well as our Twitter handle, at simple underscore beep. You can also find each of us individually on Twitter. I am at E. Cormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. And I'm at B. Suto, B-S-U-T-O. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.